Good evening. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors at St. Philip the Deacon Lutheran Church here in Plymouth. And on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon and Mount Olivet Lutheran Church, also in Plymouth, uh, who jointly present these events, it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Um, a word about the flow of the evening. First of all, uh, after we hear from our speaker, you'll have a chance to ask him some questions through an open mic, uh, which it occurs to me we need to get for later, uh, the wireless, if that's all right. And uh, so be thinking about questions you'd like to ask him. Um, and after that, you'll have a chance to meet him personally in the foyer, where you also have a chance to purchase some of his books, which he will be happy to inscribe for you. Um, over the last seven years, a number of people have suggested speakers and topics to me. I think perhaps, uh, I would not be exaggerating though if I said that uh, more than any other topic has been a question of, can you bring someone in who can talk to us about how Christianity relates to other religions or world religions? And people have phrased the question differently, but I've been on the lookout as a result of that question for speakers. And about this time last year, if I'm not mistaken, I ran across a review of one of our speakers' books, uh, which is The Baker Pocket Guide to World Religion, written by someone that both he and I respect deeply. And the review said that the book is informed, balanced in its judgments, and very accessible in style. And I thought, sounds like our guy. And I wrote him, and he was kind enough to join us. He is a professor of religion at Roanoke College in Virginia. He is also the teaching pastor at St. John Lutheran Church also in Roanoke. He's the author of many books about Jonathan Edwards and also books about interfaith dialogue. We are thrilled to have him tonight. Would you help me welcome Dr. Gerald McDermott. Well, thank you very much for coming out on a Friday night. This is impressive, such a good crowd. And thank you, Tim, so much. Uh, uh, those of you who go to St. Phillips are with with Pastor Tim and Pastor David are, are, are privileged. Um, I've had a wonderful time interacting with Tim this last year or so. Um, so I thank um, Pastor David and Pastor Tim for inviting me. And I commend them for trying to find somebody on this subject because, you know, it used to be back in the 80s, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, that the primary challenge facing Christians, the primary challenges facing Christians were things like communism, atheism, materialism, but not anymore. Those are no longer the primary intellectual and sociological challenges of Christianity. Today it's the world religions. It really is the number one challenge to the Christian faith. And I see this as a college professor. My students aren't asking, why shouldn't I be an atheist? They aren't, they aren't asking, well, why shouldn't I be a Marxist? Or why shouldn't I be a materialist? They're asking, why should I follow Jesus and not the Buddha? That's what they're asking. Why shouldn't I be a Taoist? And therefore, uh, I'm glad that, that Pastor Westermeyer had the um, prescience to, to uh, plan this occasion. Now, many non-Christians are scandalized 
Because Christians say that Jesus is the only way to God. Non-Christians are also scandalized because some Christians say that only Christianity has truth. Non-Christians are also scandalized because some Christians say that only Christianity has goodness, that is, can make a person morally good. Now I'm going to, in this short amount of time, I'm going to ask and try to answer four questions. First, is there truth in other world religions? Second, is there goodness in other world religions? In other words, do the other world religions make, or can they make for moral goodness? Third, what is unique about the Christian faith when, when compared to the other world religions? And then finally, fourth, can non-Christians be saved? So, let's see what we can do in the next 40 minutes. First of all, the question, is there truth in other world religions? My answer is, yes, there is. Now, let's take the most important religion in the world, geopolitically today, Islam. Is, um, Muslims say that there is a God. That's true. Now, how many of you know that some major world religions, some major religious founders say there is no God? The Buddha, for example, was for all practical purposes an atheist. Uh, philosophical Taoism is a major world religion, it's a major religious tradition. It also says there is no personal God. Same thing for philosophical Hinduism. There is no personal infinite God and uh, no God as we know it, um, creator, sustainer, and redeemer, and redeemer, no. So Muslims are right when they say there is a God who's infinite and personal. Uh, Muslims are also right, we Christians have to say, when they say that God is one, and not many. Uh, Muslims are death on polytheism. We Christians also have to say that Muslims are right and that Islam has truth when it says that God is moral. Now, most now some of you might not know that there are some religions in the world that say finally at the ultimate at the highest level of reality there are no distinctions. For instance, philosophical Hinduism and philosophical um, Buddhism and philosophical Taoism all in contradistinction from the religious popular versions of each, say that the highest level of reality, there are no distinctions, including the, the distinction between good and evil. So morality is only provisional. It's only sort of down here and temporary. Christians have to say that Muslims are right. Islam has truth when it says that morality is part of the ultimate order of things. It's not simply provisional. God is moral because he defines right and wrong and, and, and truth and falsehood. And also Christians have to say that Islam has truth when it says that we're all to submit before God. That was 
about the first truth that Muhammad says the angel Gabriel brought to him at the age of 40 when he was seeking God. He was a seeker, a religious seeker in the cave above Mecca. That we all have, that we're all going to face the judgment and we all have to submit to God, therefore, in preparation for the judgment. And we Christians have to say, yes, that's right. That's truth. Now, we Christians also would have to say that Islam only has partial truth and only limited truth. For instance, you Lutherans know that works don't get you to God. We aren't saved by works. Lutherans call that works righteousness. And many, many Muslims, perhaps even most Muslims, believe in a kind of works righteousness. And we have to say at that point they're wrong. But we also need to acknowledge that Sufis, and those are mystical Muslims, and in Egypt, a recent study showed that half of the Muslims in Egypt are Sufis. That Sufis believe in grace and talk about grace. <coughs> and we Christians also need to know that Shiites, and since 9-11 we've all heard about Shiites, they represent about 15% of Muslims worldwide. <laughs> They're almost all located in southern Iraq and in Iran. Shiites believe is a strong thread of their tradition that talks about redemptive suffering. That the suffering of, of, of a separate person from me can somehow bring redemption to me through that person's suffering. Now they talk about the redemptive suffering of Hussein, the prophet's grandson. He was captured and assassinated at Karbala. But we have to say the idea, of course, the person is the wrong person for Christians, but the idea of redemptive suffering, and historians tell us that possibly this idea of redemptive suffering came from contact with Christians. Now, we don't know that for sure. But we have to say as Christians that the concept, if not the person, is true. And even Sunnis, who are 85% of, 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 Muslim uh, of Muslims, even a lot of Sunnis say, if you really get to know them and you really talk to them, that they know that they're not righteous enough to make it to paradise. That they'll have to spend a lot of years in um, quasi-purgatory. Most Muslims believe in this, that after death, they suffer in purgatory until they're purged. Uh, you know, a very Catholic idea, you might say. But most, um, many Sunnis would say, that, that they know they're not good enough and they're trusting in the merits of the prophet's family. Concept, once again, that resonates with Christians. But, of course, Muslims reject the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Last month, my photographer son and I hiked the Jesus Trail, which... It's only been in existence for two years. It starts in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. It's a four-day hike, 40 miles. You hike 10 miles a day, and you stay with Israelis and Palestinians along the way, Jews and Muslims and Arab Christians. 
um, which we did. We hiked with 50-pound packs on our backs because my son's a photographer. He brought along three cameras and a tripod. And we had to carry our food and water, which is really heavy when it's really hot and really, really dry. Uh, and we, 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 we stayed one night in Cana, where Jesus turned the water into wine. And we were hiking up out of Cana, up this top of this mountain, and we passed by this beautiful house. And, and, it's a, and this is an Arab uh, town, almost entirely. This beautiful house, and the owner of the house was picking dates from his date tree in his front yard, and he invited us in. Arabs are so friendly. And my feet were killing me, and I thought, well, this is great. And so we come in there, we have coffee with him and his wife and, and his brother. And he's, his name is Marwan, and he's 41 years old. And Marwan says, I'm not a Christian, but I believe that Jesus is going to return and save everyone. I said, really? I said, are you a Muslim? He said, no, not really. Sort of. He said, when I was a boy, I was very sick. And my mother prayed to God that if God would heal me, she would make me a Christian. <laughs> I got better, and she brought me to church, to an Arab Christian church. But his brother was sitting next to him, and his wife said, you know, Jesus was not crucified. Uh, and his wife said, someone else was crucified in this place. That's a common Muslim belief, by the way. And Jesus did not rise from the dead. And Marwan, after his wife and his brother, who were, who, who were you might say, Orthodox Muslims, spoke, then Marwan looked at us straight in the eyes and said, no, Jesus was crucified, and he did rise from the dead. Now, um, Jews, Judaism, insofar as Jews believe in their Bible, what we call the Old Testament, what they call Tanakh, uh, not Torah, um, Torah is just the first five books, the whole Old Testament is Tanakh, uh, we would have to say that if they believe what's in there, they're believing the truth. They and we agree it's the Word of God. Now, of course, Jews reject the Messiah. They reject Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, largely because, they say, the Old Testament prophecies say that Jesus, or that the Messiah, will bring uh, peace to the whole world and, and all the kings of the earth will bow down before him. And they say, that didn't happen in the first century. The kings of the world got together and they killed him. And he didn't bring peace. And look at all the wars ever since. And of course, therefore, Jesus is not the Son of God. And of course, they reject the Incarnation, which is the idea that God took on human flesh in the person of his son, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we hiked... Uh, I told you we stayed with both Jews and Palestinians last month. And about the third day of our hike, my feet were just absolutely killing me because I made the mistake of wearing sandals. And I was going up and down these mountains on these rocky paths. It was really stupid. So I had these huge blisters that opened up, and I was hiking on this raw flesh, 
bandages up, but it didn't help very much. So we pulled in this one night to this Jewish hostel up near the top of the cliffs of our belt. Those of you who've been to Israel, this, these are those huge, majestic cliffs that overlook the Sea of Galilee. And we stayed with this wonderful Israeli couple named Israel and Sarah. What names? And they're both in their 60s, and they're both atheists, which is not uncommon for Israelis. There's an awful lot of um, Israeli atheists. And so, so, I, so we asked Sarah, so Sarah, you know, you, you, know, you know, Sarah and Israel, tell us why you're atheists. And Sarah said, well, my mother was a survivor of the Holocaust. She, she went to seven death camps, including Auschwitz. And before she went, she was a very conservative, orthodox, deeply believing Jew. And when she came out, she was an atheist because she said, God didn't hear my prayers. Now I felt like saying, well, but she, but she survived. Couldn't she see that as an answer to her prayer? But I didn't say anything. And so she said, I was raised with this all my life. There must not be a God because he would have helped my mother. And yet her mother, on her deathbed, came back to a conservative faith. And a, her, her previous conservative um, Jewish faith in God. And I find that is often the case with uh, Jews. For, um, when they hear the word Jesus, or Christian, or church, all they can think about is the Nazis, some of whom went to church on Sunday and went to do their work killing Jews on Monday. Now, popular Buddhism <clears throat> also talks about grace. Now, when I say popular Buddhism, I, I mean mostly the Mahayana tradition, which enfolds the great majority of Buddhists around the world. And in the Mahayana tradition, uh, a high percentage of Buddhists believe in Amitabha Buddha. That's the Chinese name. In Japan, it becomes Amida Buddha. And Amitabha Buddha um, is a god. He's worshipped as a god by them. He tells you that if you simply, once in your life, look to him with sincerity, with, with sincere faith, he will save you from the endless cycle of reincarnation and bring you to his pure land. And this is an idea of grace. He will forgive your sins. Now, popular Hinduism is similar. Uh, the, the, the largest part of popular Hinduism is called the Bhakti tradition. And the most popular god in the Bhakti tradition is Krishna. And Krishna says that if you believe in him with sincerity once in your life, then he will bring you to his heaven. And he... he he will set you free from the endless cycle of reincarnation, which most people in the East don't like. Uh, you know, contrary to us in the West who think it's so glamorous, reincarnation. Uh, and he will bring you to his heaven. Now, in Hindu bhakti, there are two schools, the cat school and the monkey school. In the monkey school, uh, it's believed that both our faith and our works save us. And that's because a mommy monkey will carry her babies uh, on her back, but the babies have to hold on. So they have to do something. Now, I mean, she doesn't carry them, but they got to do something too. But the cat school says it's all grace. 
and no worse at all because the little kittens are carried by their mommy whether they want to or not. They don't have to do anything. They just have to be. And the mommy, you know, sinks her teeth into the nape of the kitten's neck and, and carries the kitten away to safety and protects the kitten. So that's a pure grace school. So we have to say as Christians that when these popular Buddhist movements and these popular Hindu movements talk about grace, that there's forgiveness apart from works, that the, there's, something truth in that, there's something true in that concept. Now once again, historians will say that uh, it's very, very plausible, very, very possible that um, Buddhism and Hinduism in its historical development from contact with Christianity picked up these ideas. But nevertheless, we have to say as Christians that we aren't the only religions in the world that teach some form of grace. But there are differences. Grace in popular Hinduism and popular Buddhism is gratuitous. It didn't cost these Buddhas or these Hindu gods anything. They don't know as scripture teaches, that there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. We Christians know that, it, that grace cost God everything. It cost him his own life in his son by the shedding of blood. And also, of course, these, these Buddhists and these Hindus are polytheists. So as Christians, we have to say they are wrong on that score. Now let me turn uh, um, to another religion, that is pretty popular around here, I hear, and that's Wicca. Off the beaten path of the major world religions, but nevertheless extremely popular in the West, in North America, and South America, and Europe, and Australia. Um, Neo-paganism, and, and Wicca is one of the most famous representatives of the uh, neo-paganist movements. We have to say as Christians that Wicca has some truth. Why? Because Wiccans say that this cosmos is finally, ultimately spiritual and not simply material. It's not simply a matter of atoms and molecules. Ultimate reality is spiritual, not material. And we have to say, yes, yes, that's true. And, and Wiccans also believe in a kind of divine design. Now, there's no personal God for Wiccans, um, but nevertheless, they do talk about a kind of divine design for each individual. And we have to say as Christians to Wiccans, yes, um, we agree with you on that. And yet, Wiccans, neo-pagans um, generally, don't know how to come to terms with radical evil. Because for neo-pagans, as for the New Age, all is one. And if all is one, at the highest level of reality, there are no distinctions. And thus no distinction between good and evil. And we talked about that a little bit before for philosophical Buddhists and Hindus. And if there's no final distinction between good and evil, then you have no philosophical leg to stand on to talk about radical evil, to talk about even the possibility of radical evil. Or the evil in us. So Wiccans instead will say that we are sleeping gods. As Christians, we have to say, no, we're not. God is God, and we are not. We, in fact, are very fallen creatures 
that's why we need desperately Jesus Christ to redeem us. Now the Buddha, um, um, despite being an atheist, taught truth. Now, now uh, let me qualify that a little bit. The Buddha did talk about gods, but the gods that the Buddha talked about are little local spirits, like the spirit of you know Lake Minnetonka, and the spirit of Mount. Oh, I can't point to a mountain around here, can I? But the, you know, you know, the spirit of the mountain. But but for the Buddha. There is no creator, there's no redeemer, uh, there's no creator because the world always was. The world's eternal, and the gods were burped up at one point in time. And, but the Buddha did teach that humans are flawed, that our present state of human existence is flawed. And the Buddha taught that the principal reason why we are flawed as human beings is because we have defective desire. And he said there are three kinds of, of desires that we have. In fact, for the Buddha, all desire is bad, but we would say all three are defective because he said the desires are of, of the following three kinds. First, a desire for sensual pleasure. Second, a desire for gratification of the ego. And third, a desire for non-being, which we would call suicide. But, you know, we would have to say as Christians that there's a lot of truth to that. That, that we are flawed because of our sinful desires. And, and we can say, at least to a point, that, that we agree in some respects with, with that analysis of the human condition. Now, the Buddha also talked about nirvana. <clears throat> and lest you get the idea that nirvana is the Buddhist equivalent of heaven, let me tell you that in nirvana, according to the Buddha, there are no beings, there's no consciousness, and there are no ideas. And, and there are no souls or selves. So, if you make it to nirvana, let's speak hypothetically here, you aren't a you, since, you, since you're a self, and, and there are no selves there, there are no souls there. So we aren't talking about anything um, remotely like human consciousness, since there is no consciousness. All the Buddha could say really about nirvana is that there's no more suffering. So this is light years from the Christian and Jewish idea of heaven, well, the Christian idea of heaven, where, where you are still a you. You still have your own consciousness. You have your own soul and body after the resurrection. And you are in loving and joyful communion and knowledge and, uh, with and knowledge of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A God in three persons. Okay. Now the second question, um, do other religions teach goodness? You know, most of my students are like most Americans, and they believe two very wrong things about the world religions and moralities. They say, they believe when they walk into my classes, all the world religions teach the same thing. And, you know, most Americans, if you corner them, will, will say something like that. 
um, except maybe Islam. You know, they might not say that about Islam since 9-11. And most of my students, like most Americans, will also say that the moral systems of the world are radically different. The great moral traditions are totally contradictory. Well, they're wrong on both scores. The world religions are actually radically different when, when they talk about the vertical. That is, if there's a God, what that God is like, and how to get to that God. You could not invent more different ways of answering those questions than the great world religions do. But on the horizontal, how to live as a human being with other human beings, all the great moral traditions, which all started with religious visions, by the way, and, and they're all presently funded by religious vision, they all teach basically the same things. Now, they apply those same things differently, they interpret those same things differently, but they're the same basic principles. They're encapsulated in what we call the Ten Commandments. They all teach that we should be honest, for example. They all teach that sex has to do with marriage. They all teach that the individual should sacrifice himself or herself for the community. There is no moral tradition in the world that says that it's okay to be selfish. There's no moral tradition in the world that says that it's okay to lie, cheat, steal, or, or, uh, um, or to engage in sex as a recreational activity. Now, we Christians shouldn't be surprised, since the Apostle Paul told us in Romans chapter 2, that God has written His law on every human heart. And Paul was talking there about non-Jews and non-Christians, pagans. C.S. Lewis once said that if you are trying to learn about the moral traditions of the world, the moral teachings of the world, of all the different cultures, and you went to the British Museum, which by the way is a library, and you spent three days there reading all that's been left in print from the great moral traditions of the world, you'd get very bored because you'd find out that they all are talking about the same basic principles. And he shows this at the end of his wonderful book called The Abolition of Man in a little section called the, the Tao. It's actually pronounced Tao, but it's spelled with a T, Tao. So, for instance, um, Confucius taught the negative golden rule. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Now, that's also called the silver rule. The Buddha taught the five precepts. Don't, or uh, no sex sin, which, which for Buddhists means, if you're a monk, no sex at all. If you're not a monk, either single or married, and no sex except within marriage. Um, no lying, no killing, no alcohol, so you can't be a Lutheran and a Buddhist at the same time. But there's a basic agreement there on the no alcohol, which is the point, the rationale there is that when you're intoxicated, you cannot do the right thing, either religiously or morally. 
And finally, no stealing. Now the Quran teaches what we call the Ten Commandments. It doesn't call them the Ten Commandments, but since Muhammad was very, very much influenced by Christian businessmen whom he did business with as a caravan trader, uh, you see the Ten Commandments all over the Quran. Now, as I said, the different moral traditions of the world uh, apply these principles differently. They interpret them differently. For instance, marriage. If you're a Muslim man, you can marry up to four wives as long as you treat them all equally, which some Muslim friends of mine say, well, that's impossible, so it's an effective ban on polygamy, although there still are a lot of, of Muslim polygamists. Um, but um, nevertheless, Muslims say and believe that you can have intimate relations only with your wife or wives. And it's interesting, you know, this, this commonality of the world religions on the horizontal are grounds for our, as Christians, cooperating in the public square with non-Christians on moral and social issues. Um, for example, in 1995, at the World Population Conference in Cairo, Egypt, there was a proposal to make abortion on demand a universal right, universal human right. And Muslims got together with Catholics under the leadership of the Vatican to defeat that proposal, which came, by the way, from America, or from the Americans at the conference. Uh, Muslims and Christians are working together today on to fight um, human sex trafficking. So, that's the answer to my second question. Is there moral goodness possible in the other world, in the other world religions? Do the other world religions teach moral, moral goodness? My answer is yes. My third question is, what is unique about Christianity? <clears throat> well, I think I've already um, mentioned some. Uh, some answers to that question, um, as I've said, is primarily on the vertical, not the horizontal. So it's primarily about, A, whether there's a God, who that God is, and, and how we come into union with that God, that we have radically different um, answers from the Christian faith. But let me give you five more specific ways in which Christianity is unique among the world religions. First, Jesus is the only religious founder who claimed that he was God. Now, if you went to college and took a course in religious studies, you might have been taught by your professor that the Gospels never claim that Jesus is God, with the exception of, of, of the fourth Gospel, John, where it's as clear as day. But they say the synoptics are never claimed. That If that professor said it, that professor doesn't know Jewish culture very well. Because the story that is common in the synoptic Gospels is the story of the healing of the paralytic. Remember, he was brought down through the hole in the roof by his friends. And Jesus says to him, My son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes started mumbling, No one can say that except God alone. And Jesus says, well, just to prove to you that I have the authority to say it, um, watch this. And then he heals the man, and, and the paralytic you know, gets up and walks home. All 
Jews in the first century knew that only God can forgive sins of you that you have committed against someone else. Uh, I can't forgive those sins. That other person can, but I can't. Only God can. All Jews knew that. And that's why the text in Mark chapter 2 and elsewhere in the synoptics says the, the scribes were mumbling under their breath. That was a clear claim to deity. All right. So Jesus is the only religious founder who claimed that he was God. Muhammad said, I'm just a man. The Buddha said, I'm just a man. Confucius said, I'm just a man, a very flawed man at that. He was a very humble man. He said, I don't even live up to, to the ideals that I teach. Lao Tzu. In the West, he's called Lao Tzu, the founder of, 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 of Taoism. If he existed, we don't even know if he really existed. But he said, I'm just a man. There is no God anyway. Uh, number two, Jesus is the only religious founder whose disciples, shortly after his death, put into writing their testimonies that they saw him do miracles. Now, we have reports of the Buddha doing miracles, but those reports didn't show up until at least 300 years after his death. We have reports of Muhammad doing miracles, but they're not anywhere in the Quran. They're in the Hadith, and many of the Hadith, even by Muslims, are conceded to be inauthentic. And the Gospels are full of miracle stories. Going back to eyewitness testimony, all coming out um, within several decades after his death. Third, Jesus is the only religious founder in the world religion whose disciples say over and over and over again that he was raised from the dead. Bodily, not just in soul. And his disciples over and over again say, look, we know this was not um, mass hypnosis. We know that he didn't just appear as a ghost because we had breakfast with him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and we ate fry or broiled fish and bread. A ghost doesn't eat. And, and we were just at that very spot, my son and I, last month. Now, now I've been there a bunch of times before, but it's called, if, if you go to Israel in the future, go to the Sea of Galilee, go to the little chapel that's called Peter's Primacy. And that's where church tradition tells us, and a lot of church tradition is quite authentic in Israel, Jesus had breakfast. The resurrected Jesus, with his resurrected body, had broiled fish and bread with his disciples, proving that he truly was raised, not just in soul, but in body from the dead. Fourth, the Christian faith is the only faith that says that God came to earth and suffered bodily. Therefore, only Christians can say that when they suffer, they know God can relate to them because God was once a human being, or in fact is still a human being at the right hand of the Father, and suffered the same things they suffered. A Jew can't say that. A Muslim can't say that. Now, Hindus also talk about incarnation, say, of Krishna, but 
most learned um, Hindus will tell you that we know that all the stories about the incarnations of Krishna are just stories, are just religious stories that teach a spiritual point, that they didn't actually happen in history. Fifth, the Christian faith is the only faith uh, uh, among the world religions that says that God himself provided atonement for sin. In the popular Buddhist and Hindu traditions I told you about, which they do talk about grace, there's no atonement for sin made. It's gratuitous grace. No other world religion says God himself provided atonement for sin so that we don't have to. And most, most people of the world believe they have to make atonement for their own sins. And Christians say, we don't have to because Jesus already did it for us. He did the work. So therefore, we don't have to do that work. Okay, finally, the fourth question, are non-Christians saved? Or can they be saved? Well, there have been three answers to this question in the history of Christianity. The first is pluralism. Now, now, now pluralism means many different things. But, but in this context, answering this question, this is a theological tradition that says that uh, a person that all the world religions save through those religions, and there are many different saviors. Well, the Christian tradition for 2,000 years has emphatically rejected that. And by the way, that's been around for 2,000 years. It didn't, it didn't just pop up in the 1960s. So, the whole theological tradition has rejected theological pluralism that says there are many saviors, and, you know, I just picked the one that appeals to you. Uh, there are two other answers, though, that have been accepted as orthodox by the orthodox Christian tradition for 2,000 years. And the first one has been lately termed exclusivism or restrictivism. And this is the tradition that says, no, a non-Christian cannot be saved. Because the New Testament tells us in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which a man or a woman can be saved. John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No one, no one comes to the Father but by me. 1 John 5, 12. God has, has given eternal life, and that life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Now, the second of the Orthodox traditions that has been accepted for 2,000 years and has recently been officially endorsed by the Roman Catholic Church at Vatican II and more recently by John Paul and Benedict, is what has been recently termed inclusivism, which says, yes, a non-Christian can be saved if he or she realizes that his or her works are not going to do it. And it's only by the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God that he or she can be admitted into the presence of God eternally. Now, this, this is not to say that the other world religions save. It is to say a Buddhist can be saved, but it's not to say that the Buddhist is going to be saved through her Buddhism. The Buddhist, if he's saved, will be saved by Jesus Christ. And so, here's an example. There's a peasant in Central Asia, in a Muslim country. And he's heard about Jesus, but he's been told that that, uh, that Jesus was an evil religious figure, 
he's never really heard the gospel. He, he hasn't heard about the true Jesus. He's, he's been told all sorts of falsehoods about Jesus. But he works in the rice paddies every day, grinding labor, and he's trying to be a good Buddhist. But he knows that he falls far short of what the Buddha said he should be doing. And he knows that the only way that he's ever going to make it is if the Buddha, or whoever God is, has mercy on him. The inclusivist says he's really trusting in Jesus, who is the mercy of God, but just doesn't know the name. Now, they point to passages like Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, where, they, where a lot of the sheep seem not to have known that they were sheep. Lord, when did I feed you and give you to drink? When did I visit you in prison? And they point to John 1.9, where John says, the true light, and, and John's talking about Jesus, the true light that enlightens every man, the Greek says, of course it means woman too, every human being was coming into the world. In some way, Jesus makes himself known to every human being, even the atheist. That, now that's not saying he saves every human being, but he makes himself known. In Romans 2, they, they point to that passage where Paul says, verses 14 and 15, the conscience bearing witness and conflicting thoughts accusing or perhaps excusing. Now he's talking there about pagans, neither Christians nor Jews, those who don't have the law of God. And that word excuse at the end is, is uh, suggestive. They point to all the Old Testament saints who obviously didn't know about Jesus. Jesus hadn't come in the flesh yet. They, they point to the pagan saints who didn't even know the Jewish law, weren't within Judaism, such as Abel, Enoch, Abimelech. By the way, Martin Luther, for you Lutherans, Abimelech, uh, Martin Luther said, was clearly in the kingdom of God. Lot, Job, how many of you knew that Job was not a Jew? Uh, the Queen of Sheba, Ruth. Now, of course, Ruth came into Judaism, but even before, she seems to have been... Um, seeking the true God. And all the heroes, or many of the heroes of Hebrews 11. In Acts 10, Cornelius, the centurion, before he hears the gospel um, about Jesus, now, now he seems never to even have heard about Jesus, from Peter, uh, Luke in Acts tells us that God was already accepting his prayers and his alms. And None other than John Calvin, who was not a religious liberal, and Jonathan Edwards, who was not a religious liberal, said that at that point, before Cornelius heard the gospel from Jesus' lips, he was regenerate, that is, born again, but hadn't been converted yet. Something akin to John the Baptist, whom Luke says, received the Spirit while he was still a fetus in the womb, but hadn't been converted yet to uh, Jewish faith in the true God. And Paul in Acts 14, 17 says, God is at work in all nations. He, uh, he did not leave himself without witness. And Peter in Acts 10, after seeing God pouring out the Holy Spirit upon all these pagans, he says, in every nation, anyone who fears God and does right is acceptable to God. Now in the early church, 
they were dealing with a religious pluralism greater than ours, far greater than the religious pluralism you deal with in Minneapolis or even New York City. In third century Alexandria, it was, it was unbelievably religiously plural. So Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria and Origen were, were profound thinkers who dealt with this question of religious pluralism. And they all were agreed that Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven by which a man may be saved, or a woman, and John 14.6, no one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said, are both true. And so they both, and so all, all these early church thinkers said that only Christians are saved. But, what does that word Christian mean? They said the Spirit works on those outside the church. And in some way, Irenaeus said maybe in the millennium, in some way that God only knows, in some time that God only knows, every human being who already is following the leading of the Holy Spirit in his or her own religion will at some point be confronted with Jesus and the Gospel. And if that person is really following the Spirit through that religion, that person will realize this is the true God now. And it was only through the death and resurrection of God's Son that I have been following the Spirit at all. And they will bow their knee and confess with their lips that Jesus is Lord and God raised Him from the dead. So why should we evangelize if that's true? Well, we should evangelize because Jesus tells us to. Matthew 28, the Great Commission... Make disciples of all the nations, first. Second, we want to bring people into the fullness of life in God, which includes things like assurance of salvation, which, 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 which most pagans don't have. Uh, the fullness of life in the Spirit. And it's very interesting, Paul came to Philippi, and he runs into Lydia, who already was a worshiper of God. And Paul's decision was, well, that's not enough. She must find out who, who God truly is and come into fellowship with His Son, Jesus, even though she was already a worshiper of God. And the final reason why we still need to evangelize is because the gospel itself is power. It's power to roll back the darkness in this world. And if you're not convinced there's darkness in this world, well, turn on CNN. Or... So in conclusion, four points very sure I'm closing here. We should dialogue with people of other religions, but with respect for the truth that is in their religions, and respect toward their religious founders. Second, we can tell them that, that we agree with them in part, uh, mostly on the horizontal level, their moral teachings. Third, if we have integrity, if, if we have spiritual and religious integrity and philosophical integrity as Christians, we, we must also acknowledge the real differences that exist among the religions. On the vertical plane, they are many and they're profound. But you know, if we don't engage other, you know, our friends of other religions on where we're different, not only on how we're like, we aren't treating them with respect. I learned that from dialoguing with people of other religions around the world. I've been in serious dialogues with Mormons, serious dialogues with Muslims, serious dialogues. Now I'm, I'm, I'm involved in with Jews. And I have found they don't respect a person who says, oh yeah, we're all basically believing the same thing, and just ignore the differences. And finally, fourth, there's no need to fear engaging other 
religionists um, as Christians. In fact, I would encourage you to invite them to try to persuade you of the truth of their religion. And show them that you really want to listen, you really want to understand. But also, be open to the Holy Spirit. Don't just barge in like a bull in a china shop, but when the Holy Spirit gives you an opening, share with them the truth of Jesus Christ. Thank you. I would say you lived up to the review, wouldn't you? Informed, balanced, and very accessible. We're going to let him just rest his vocal cords for one second, take a, a drink. Um, I've got a couple of announcements. First of all, a reminder, as you see in your program tonight, of the next event. We're going to let you get through Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. And uh, we will gather again here in uh, early February, Friday, February 5th, with a gentleman named Richard Camp, who is a uh, former chaplain of West Point. Um, and he's going to talk about faith and leadership uh, as seen through the lens of what West Point taught him during his time there. It should be fascinating. Um, also, as I always do, I lift up these green sheets. I mentioned already that um, our guest tonight is here because of a suggestion, at least in terms of topic. So I invite your feedback, your suggestions, and uh, just as importantly, I invite your email. If you do not currently get our email updates, it's a very uh, easy, efficient, uh, cost-effective way to communicate with you and let you know about upcoming events. So uh, if you give us your email and leave it on one of the tables out here, we will inform you of events, and I promise we won't fill your inbox too much. And then finally, um, as I say at most of these events, these are not supported uh, through the budgets of, of either St. Philip or Mount Olivet. They are supported entirely through the gifts and contributions of individuals and corporations. They are listed on your program, uh, and I just want to recognize at least some of the major contributors, Thrivent, uh, the St. Philip, Found, uh, the Deacon Foundation, TCF Bank, Leaders Manufacturing, Luther Seminary, Fuzzy Duck in the bookcase, as well as the, the churches, which are mostly the individuals listed here. Uh, you are here this evening, and we are able to invite speakers of Dr. McDermott's caliber because of the generosity of these people and organizations, many of whom are here tonight, and I think they deserve our thanks. So can we do that? We're going to take uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes for some Q&A. Uh, Pastor Hoffman has the microphone back there, so if there are questions, Show your hand. raise your hand. First of all, I hope you notice, uh, as a graduate of the University of Iowa, the singular vision he had, with all that noise going on, he could just plow right on through. <laughs> Isn't it good to have an adopted Hawkeye in our midst? <laughs> I went to the University of Iowa also, that's why I'm saying that. Anyway. Three cheers for the Hawkeyes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thoroughly enjoyed your presentation. Uh, I have studied Islamism and the early church traditions in the first 300 years. The question I have is this. Which one of your books best describes which the one that I would like to get that, that shows what you have uh, presented to us tonight that I think was magnificent with respect to particularly your thought that you echoed in your last few statements that with respect to Christians, it's the fullness of faith that has been revealed to us that tends to, in a way, from the other uh, religions. You know. But which book is the best one to buy for all of them? <laughs> well, I'd say uh, the, 
the quick and dirty one, the pocket guy, particularly the chapter on Christianity, uh, that's the little book on sale out there. And the, the, the more extensive, much, much deeper, and that's also. So buy both books. <laughs> Text, hands. <laughs>